Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Guardian. In 1982, a university graduate started drawing a cartoon for a political magazine. Will Self's slump not only commented on the difficult socio-economic climate of the era, but also set him on the path to a celebrated writing career. When I left university in 1982, I was already drawing cartoons for university publications. We had a little kind of anarchist free sheet called Red Herring I did graphics for. And also I was involved with a magazine called Mandrake for the collision of ideas, and I did cartoons for that. I'd left university with a third-class degree after being vivid, having an oral exam for my degree because they couldn't figure out what degree to give me. Actually, because I'd drawn cartoons on my, <laughs> my examination papers, which I thought was quite droll. One of my philosophy papers, I drew a, a cartoon of Jean-Paul Sartre next to a cartoon of a hammer the same size and wrote underneath it actual size. I thought that was quite witty. But at the Viva, that wasn't really the view taken by the academics who examined me. So I had a rather indifferent degree. And I had a, a fairly extensive criminal record for, for a 20-year-old. I think I had about eight convictions for drug offences. I'd sat my finals on bail, waiting to go to court and possibly looking at a custodial sentence. So I was already beyond the pale. But I had an image of myself as a cartoonist and I had a little portfolio and I put my little cartoons in it and I went round Fleet Street newspaper offices seeing cartoon and picture editors and trying to get work. And the magazine I ended up working for, the only people, in fact, who were remotely kind to me because I got some pretty savage rejections, was Anna Coote and Julian Rothenstein, who were then at the New Statesman. Anna Coote was editing and Julian was her art editor. And they kind of, God knows why, I liked my cartoons. So I started off illustrating articles in 82 for the New Statesman. And I would say about a couple of years later, I started to float the idea of a cartoon strip, which was Slump. And Slump was inspired by the Slump... <laughs> This week, the government will announce a £150 million programme to help relieve youth unemployment. But this package will bring no immediate benefit to the 600,000 youngsters leaving school this year. More than a third of them will still be looking for jobs in three months' time. 
They've never been unemployed in their lives. They don't know what it's like to pawn for money. We've got to pawn because we don't have money to buy food. We've all got to squat because they won't give us houses. I squatted the same area for two years because there's been so many empty houses. We've got no money at all. You know, I'd left university in 82, and I think unemployment was just coming up to 3 million at that point. So the idea that you basically left university and signed on was the zeitgeist. So I, I guess I took the idea one further, and I kind of... My character was a kind of graduate Andy Cap or kind of cut-price lazy eponymous hero of Goncharin's Oblomov. And so the kind of ident, as it were, for the strip was his profile drawn as a declining graph of economic productivity. And there he was in bed and in every four-frame strips... He'd be lying, you know, on a mattress, basically. It's quite clear he's in some sort of squat or pretty basic housing, lying on his mattress with a duvet over him. That's it. I always say now that I was really attracted to cartooning because it was a a kind of displacement activity for, you know, a would-be sort of serious literary writer who couldn't face both the effort and really was so intimidated in my early 20s by writing. Like most people who become writers, I was a kind of ferocious reader. I mean, I just read and read and read and read. My sense of the authenticity of voice that you need as a writer, I think every Tyro writer has this awareness when they're young, they write a sentence and it's almost as if you know, if Ian McEwan wrote the same sentence, it would be fine. But if I write it, it's rubbish. You know, it has no sense of maturity or kind of... Uh, and, and that completely killed me about writing. You know, I was trying to write, I, I longed to write, but I just couldn't face it, my own sentences. And so, you know, I went to cartoon, or I would always say this, because it enabled me to express myself in a more formulaic way, you know, with, with a lot of givens. I loved cartoon. I, I thought it was fantastic. I'd grown up, my mother was American and used to get the New Yorkers. I'd grown up on New Yorker cartoons and looking at Charles Adams and uh, reading Jules Pfeiffer strips, which were very, very big then in the 70s and 80s. Pfeiffer was a very good role model, actually, because he was a kind of very clever and intellectual cartoonist in that way and very witty man and a playwright as well so he you know he showed that it was possible to do more than one thing I was very conscious of Ralph Steadman's work though I mostly admired him not for his gag making but for his fantastic line it's an astonishing line and and the drawings in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas were just absolutely the, the dernier cri in cartoon art as far as I was concerned and when I went on to work with Steadman which I did for quite a while it was obviously one of, it was one of the high points of my career but probably most important in terms of influence was John Glashen who's now sadly forgotten but did a fantastic strip in, in the Observer magazine for many years called Genius And before that, in the 60s, had been a really brilliant spot cartoonist, I think. I mean, just to give you a flavour of his work, one of my favourites is a group of down-and-outs lying in a squat, drinking meths, and one of them is saying to the other, anyone can be a success, but it takes real guts to be a failure. And and Glashen just had this completely 
left-field, surreal sense of humour. In his collected book of cartoons, the dedication reads, for John Glashan, without whom this book would not have been possible. And it, that just gives you a flavour of the man. And I loved his work and his graphic style was kind of little men with beards drawn quite spikily, obviously with an old dipper pen. And, uh, you know, it was pen and wash and watercolour with a, with a brush. And he, it was a really unusual style. And he's probably remains to this day my favourite cartoonist. You know, it does seem amateurish to me, at least until I managed to teach myself to draw perspective. But what strives me not so much, yeah, I think I can handle the dramatic arc and I think I can make gags. But what strikes me now, bearing in mind these strips were drawn in the early 80s, is I was pretty good on the zeitgeist, on, on emergent trends. You know, I catch up on things, uh, on developments in the feminist movement. I mean, I'm interested. Slump's milieu is kind of London left-wing squatty, you know, pot-smoky kind of environment. But, you know, he's kind of got a friend who's running a men's group. He knows a guy who's a neo-paganist shaman, you know... A lot of the kind of little gags about culture and emergent trends seemed to me fairly prescient about the way that society was developing at that time. And, you know, there's a lot of contemporary cultural references are name-checked, from Frankie Goes to Hollywood Christmas singles to, you know, skinheads becoming a fashion statement rather than the political movement in the early... You know, all of that sort of stuff is going on. And some kind of fascinating anachronisms, like the existence of the London Electricity Board. You know, on the other hand, there's an evocation of a world that really is gone. But the situation politically and the kind of conversation that people on the left were having with themselves in the early 80s was pretty much exactly the same as it is now. Nothing seems to have changed in terms of thinking on the left, which I find a little bit depressing the other thing about the 80s was you know I you know became addicted to to drugs when I when I was at university so the whole of the 80s there was another curve in there as well in terms of my in, in the you know I kind of got worse and worse and worse till you know, in 1986, I had a sort of proper, full-blown, half a gram a day needle heroin habit. And then I ended up in, in rehab. And I was only 25. And then the back end of the 80s, I was painfully lucid and sober. So that was a kind of dialectic of its own in terms of the creative path. And it shouldn't be underestimated. I mean, if you spend your late teens and, and first half of your 20s as a heroin addict, it's like, you know jumping up and down on your creative liberty and giving it a solid kicking. I think the way I felt about myself during that period, and, you know, I must have lived in about 10 or 15 different addresses. It was a chaotic time. I really felt, you know, it was the best of times and the worst of times. I was both tremendously chuffed in my early 20s to have a creative outlet, to be publishing, to have people... And you've got to remember, it was the era of King Print. I mean, you know, people really did 
look at this stuff and talk about it. So I had that sense, but at the same time, I was in free fall. You know, I'd, I'd come to some semblance of adulthood with, with a drug addiction and was living in a kind of arguably pathology or self-imposed poverty a lot of the time. I remember drawing slump and, and having one light bulb in the flat I was living in and moving it from where I was drawing to the sort of sitting room area in order to do it. Yeah, of course, I'd spent all my money on gear, but, you know, that was the reality of the situation. So the kind of deadline for producing the cartoons could often be quite onerous. I'd have two weekly deadlines. I'd have to kind of haul my, basically try and get myself relatively straight to draw these cartoons. So it was a kind of odd time in that way. And I think actually that is in the slump cartoons. You can sense uh, an undertow of, frankly, misery and desperation as well. What strikes me is, as most bizarre about my late teens and early 20s was I had a vaulting ambition. I really, really wanted to write seriously. I knew I was in terrible trouble with drugs. I understood that intuitively and at a deep level, and I was absolutely right about that. The economic situation in the country overall felt dreadful, and particularly for those of us who were on the left, felt almost apocalyptic. And yet, you know, compared to young people nowadays, and I teach people at that age now, I think in a bizarre way, I wasn't as pressurised and I, I wasn't as obsessed with some kind of career path. I mean, partly because I was excluded from it already with my criminal record and my drug problems, but mostly because I don't think there was that sense that, every, you know, everybody had to kind of get their act together and get on the career, get on the housing ladder or the career ladder. There was a sort of uh, laissez-faire feeling about being in your 20s then. And, and, and even though I kind of thought about it and wanted to succeed and desperately feared that I wouldn't with very, very good reason, uh, I don't remember it agonising me in quite the way that I see young people agonised about things nowadays. The strip ran, I would say, for probably a couple of years between, I would say, about 83 and 86. And then I had a friend, Cat Ledger, who's gone on to be a quite well-known literary agent, who was working for, believe it or not, something called Virgin Books. So Branson had this imprint that he'd in fact flogged off to, uh, I mean, it sort of travelled around the imprint, but Cat was running it, and uh, she offered me the deal to publish a collected form of Slump. And then when I got clean in 86... I definitely felt kind of both obviously far more competent and far more kind of liberated into my own creativity and that's when I was able to make the move into writing properly. Far from the, the road of excess leading to the palace of wisdom, it was only once I stepped off the road of excess that, that I got anywhere near being able to work effectively. Around the same time that Slump was published, and I was actually working at that time for Cat Ledger at Virgin Books, I was reading a slush pile for her and cooking up plans to package other book ideas. And actually, that was another strand that led me properly into writing, because I started doing writing commissions. But one morning, I had my kind of epiphanic 
moment as a psychogeographer, though I wouldn't have known the term in 19, uh, whatever it was, 86 or 7, I, I wouldn't have known the term. And I went into work and the offices were shut, I hadn't even realised it, and I found myself with a day to kill. And I, I was standing in Hill Street in Mayfair and, and it really did come to me as a weird epiphany. I thought, what am I going to do today? And then I thought, the Thames. I thought about the Thames for some reason. I thought about the River Thames and I thought about how I'd been born in Charing Cross Hospital at that time by Charing Cross Station on the banks of the Thames. I'd lived in the city all my life and I had no idea what the river mouth looked like. I had no visual image of it. And I, I did think at the time, if you went 30 miles from the mouth of the Amazon and asked some poor benighted Amazonian peon, what's it like at the mouth of the Great River? And he said to you, oh, I've never been there. You'd think he was an incredibly benighted peasant. You know, so I set off that day in my car for the mouth of the Thames. And that was the beginning of an interest in what I called at the time, again after William Burroughs, interzones, but which have come known now as edgelands. So all of my early kind of psychogeography, because I went on to explore those edgelands, quite a lot of it with my friend Nick Papadimitriou, who's gone on uh, kind of, I mean, we're still walking liminal places and interzones together now and Nick will be 60 next year so we've been doing it most of our adult life together in various forms and it was a kind of a sense that there was something very profound to be said about the built environment and by extension uh, society by understanding these places which were underimagined and under-recognised. Now when I look back on it from the kind of freeze-dried neoliberal London of, of 2017, I sort of think, you know, we were onto something and we were revelling again in a city that was much more discontinuous than it is now, was under-imagined in that way, didn't have, for example, uh, a kind of new psychogeographer who's kind of ready in Sinclair crawling over it. Uh, you know, there really was nobody around at that time. I think that the parallels between the, the cartoon work and, and the early literary work are the milieu, actually, in which they take place. You know, I think Martin Amis said of, of my first book, it's, it's a world of dread and dowdiness. And I think that certainly applies to the cartoon world as well. And it's also a world, uh, not so much the sump cartoons, but I remember a cartoon I did for City Limits that was a kind of, you know, one of those models of a molecule that you get in science laboratories. But instead of the little balls being joined by rods, each little ball is a man in a suit sitting behind a desk. And the caption was, the molecular structure of bank managers. And I think that that kind of synecdocal idea is very, very strong in the early fiction, that idea of part for whole and whole for part. And that idea that you can dive into a quite quotidian aspect of the world and find a kind of ulterior world of strangeness, I think is there in the cartooning and then develops in, in the fiction. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.